Chapter Twenty Eight of the Mystery of the Hasty Arrow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romantic, too romantic. Part One. Next morning, Mr. Grice left his home an hour earlier than usual. He wished to have a talk with Mrs. Taylor's nurse before encountering the inspector. It was an inconvenient time for the nurse to leave the sickbed, but the matter being so important, she was prevailed upon to give him a few moments in the little reception room where he had seated himself. The result was meager, that is, from her standpoint. All she had to add to what she had written him the day before was the fact that the two lines of verse quoted in the note she had sent him were Mrs. Taylor's first coherent utterance, and that they had been spoken not only once, but many times. In every kind of tone, and with ever-varying emphasis. That, and a dreamy request for the papers, the papers, which had followed some action of her own this very morning, comprised all that she had to give in fulfillment of the promise she had made him at the beginning of this illness. Mr. Grice believed her, and rose reluctantly to his feet. Then she is still very ill? Very ill, but mending daily, or so the doctor says. If she talks again, as she is liable to do at any moment, do not check her, but remember every word. The importance of this I cannot impress upon you too fully, but do not by any show of curiosity endanger her recovery. She seems to be one of the very best sort. I would not have her body or mind sacrificed on my account. You may trust me, sir. He nodded, giving her his hand. But as he was turning away, he looked back with the quiet remark, I should like to ask a final question. You have been in constant attendance on this lady for some time, and must have seen many of her friends, as well as taken charge of her mail and of any messages which may have been left for her? Has there been anything in this experience to settle the doubt as to whether her talk of a vision in which she saw her absent husband stricken simultaneously with the poor child lying at that very moment dead at her feet, simply delirium, or a striking instance of telepathy recording an accomplished fact? In other words, do you believe her husband to be living or not living at the present time? That is a subject on which I have not been able to form any opinion. I have heard nothing, seen nothing to influence my mind either way. Some other people have asked me the same question. If her mail contains any news, it is still in the hands of the proprietor of the hotel. He has refrained from sending it up. She has lived here, as you know, for a long while. Has she no relative to share your watch or take such things in charge? I have seen none. Friends she has in plenty, but no one who claims relationship with her or who raises the least objection to anything I do. He seemed about to ask another question, but refrained and allowed her to depart after some final injunction as to what she should do in case of certain emergencies. Then he had a talk with the proprietor, which added little or nothing to his present knowledge, and these duties off his mind 
he went downtown. As he expected, he found the chief inspector awaiting him. The death of Madame Duclos had added still another serious complication to the many with which this difficult affair was already encumbered. And he was anxious to talk over the matter with one who had been on the spot and upon whose impressions he consequently could rely. But when he heard all that Mr. Grice had to say on the subject, he grew as serious as the detective himself could wish, even going so far as to propose an immediate ride over to the district attorney's office. Fortunately, they found that gentleman in and ready to listen, though it was evident that he expected little from the conference. But his temper changed as Mr. Grice opened up his theory and began to substantiate it with facts. The looks which he exchanged with the chief inspector grew more and more earnest and inquiring, and when Mr. Grice reached that portion of his report which connected Mr. Roberts so indisputably with the arrow, he called in his assistant, and together they listened to what Mr. Grice had further to say. With this addition to his audience, the old man's manner changed and became a trifle more formal. He related the fact, not generally known, of Mr. Robert's engagement to a young girl residing on Long Island, and how this was broken off immediately after the occurrence at the museum, seemingly for no other reason than the unhappy condition of mind in which he found himself, a condition added to, if not explained, by the pertinency with which he had haunted the morgue and dwelt upon the image of the young girl who had perished under no random shot. Here the old man paused, shrinking as much from what he had yet to say as they from the hearing of it. It was not till the chief inspector had made him an encouraging gesture that he found the requisite courage to proceed. He did so in these words. I know that the evidence I have thus far advanced is of a purely circumstantial nature, capable, perhaps, of a more or less satisfactory explanation. But what I have to add cannot be so easily disposed of. Connections have been developed between persons we thought strangers, which have opened up a field of inquiry which brings the doubts and surmises of an old detective within the scope of this office. I do not know what to make of them. Perhaps their full meaning can only be found out here. Of this only I am assured. The gentleman, whom it seems presumptuous on my part, to connect even in a casual way with crime, has not gained but lost but what I have to tell of Madame Duclos' suicidal death. To those who see no association between the two, it looks like the opening of a new lead. But when I tell you that they knew each other, or at all events, she knew him, and in the way of actual hatred, it looks more like a deepening of the old one. See here, gentlemen. Opening a package he had hitherto held in his hand, he showed them the Frederick's fifteen-year-old photograph of Mr. Roberts, together with its mutilated counterpart, and explained how the latter came to be in its present mutilated condition. But this is not all, he continued. 
as the remarks incident upon this proof of deadly hatred on the part of the mother of the victim for the man whom circumstances seemed to point out as her slayer subsided under the pressure of their interest in what he had further to impart as you will see after a moment's consideration this token of animosity does not explain madame duclos's flight and certainly not her death which as the unhappy witness of it i am ready to declare was not the death of one driven to extremity from personal fear but by some exalted feeling which we have yet to understand all that i now wish to point out in its connection is the proof offered by this shattered photograph that mr roberts was in some manner and from some cause a party to this crime from which a superficial observation would completely disassociate him where is the connecting link how can we hope to establish it that is what has now become my unfortunate duty to make plain to you carlton roberts drawing a bow to shoot an innocent schoolgirl is incredible in spite of all i have said and shown you i do not believe him guilty of so inhumane an act he drew the bow he shot the arrow but here allow me to pause a moment to present another aspect of the case as surprising as any you have yet heard you are aware as we all are aware that the inquest we await has been held back for the purpose of giving mrs taylor an opportunity to recover from the illness into which she has been thrown by what she saw and suffered that day gentlemen this mrs taylor whom we all i will not even exclude myself from this category regarded not only as a casual visitor to the museum but a stranger to all concerned is on the contrary as i think you will soon see more closely allied to the seemingly dispassionate director than even madame duclos the shock which laid her low was not that usually ascribed to her or even the one she so fantastically offered to our acceptance but the recognition of carlton roberts as the author of this tragedy carlton roberts whom she not only knew well but had loved in days gone by as sincerely as he had loved her this i now propose to prove to you by what i cannot but regard as incontestable evidence taking from a small portfolio which he carried another photograph unmounted this time and evidently the work of an amateur he laid it out before them the silence with which his last statement had been received the kind of silence which covers emotions too deep for audible expression remained unbroken save for an involuntary murmur or so as the district attorney and his assistant bent over this crude presentation of something they hardly knew what which this old but trusted detective was offering them in substantiation of the well-nigh unbelievable statement he had just made this gentleman he went on as he pointed to the following is the copy of a label pasted on the back of a certain swiss clock to be seen at this very moment on the wall of mr roberts own bedroom in his home in bellport long island he prizes this clock he has been heard to say that it goes where he goes 
and stays where he stays, and as it is as far from a valuable one, either from intrinsic worth or from any accuracy in its displays in keeping time, the reason for this partiality must lie in old associations and the memories they invoke, a love token. Can you not see that it is such from the couplet scrawled across it? If not, just take a look at the initials appended to that couplet. May I ask you to read them? The district attorney stooped, adjusted his glasses, and slowly read out, C.C.R. Carlton Clifton Roberts, explained Mr. Grice, then slowly, the other two, if you will be so good. E.T. Emmetrude Taylor, declared the inexorable voice, and written by herself. Here is her signature which I have obtained, and here is his. Compare them at your leisure, with their initials inscribed according to the date there, sixteen years or more ago. Now where were these two, this man and this woman, at the time just designated, alone or together? Let us see if we can find out, pursued the detective, with a quiet ignoring of the effect he had just produced, which revealed him as the master of a situation probably as difficult and disconcerting as the three officials hanging in manifest anxiety upon his words had ever been called upon to face. Mr. Roberts was in Switzerland, as his housekeeper will be obliged to admit on oath, she being an honest woman and a domestic in his mother's house at the time. And Emmetrude Taylor? I have a witness to prove where she was also, a witness I shall be glad to have you interrogate. Here is her name and address. And he slipped a small scrap of paper into the district attorney's hand. What she will say is this, for I think I have very thoroughly sounded her. First, that she is Mrs. Taylor's most intimate friend. This is conceded by all who know her. Secondly, that while her intimacy does not extend back to their girlhood days, Mrs. Taylor, being an Englishwoman by birth, and remarkably reticent as to her former life and experiences, she has one story to tell of that time which answers the question I have given you. She got it from Mrs. Taylor herself, and in this manner. They were engaged in talking one day about our western mountains, and the grandeur of scenery generally, when Mrs. Taylor let fall some remark about the Alps, which led this friend of hers to ask if she had ever seen them. Mrs. Taylor answered in the affirmative, but with such embarrassment and abrupt change of subject that it was plainly apparent she had no wish to discuss it. Indeed, her abruptness was so marked and her show of trouble so great that she herself was disturbed by what might very easily give offense, and being of a kindly, even loving disposition, took occasion when next they met to explain that it was as a girl she had visited Switzerland, and that her experiences there had been so unfortunate that any illusion which recalled those days distressed her. That is all that ever passed between these two on this subject, but it is not enough when we read this couplet and mark the combined initials, and recognize them as those of Carlton Roberts 
and Emmetrude Taylor. But least you should doubt even this evidence of an old-time friendship so intimate that it has almost the look of a betrothal, I must add one more item of corroborative fact which came to me as late as last night. In a moment of partial consciousness, while the nurse hung over her bed, Mrs. Taylor spoke her first coherent sentence since she fell into a state demanding medical assistance. And what was that sentence? A repetition of this couplet, gentlemen, spoken not once, but over and over again, till even the nurse grew tired of listening to it. I love but thee, and thee I will love to eternity. As the last word fell from Mr. Grice's lips, the district attorney muttered a quick exclamation, and sat down heavily in his chair. No coincidence that, he cried with forced vivacity, the couplet is too little known. Exactly, came from Mr. Grice, in dry confirmation. Mrs. Taylor, as well as her friend, can judge, is a woman of thirty-five or thirty-eight. If she went on to Switzerland as a girl, this would make her visit coincident, so far as we can calculate from our present knowledge, with that of Carlton Roberts. For the surer advancement of our argument, let us say that it was. What follows? Let the inscription of this label speak for us. They met, they loved, as was natural when we remember the youth and good looks of both. And they parted. This we must concede, or how could the experience have been one she could not recall without a heartbreak? They parted, and he returned home to marry within the year, while she, I do not think she married, though I have no doubt she looks upon herself as a wife and forever bound to the man who deserted her. Women of her kind think in this way of such matters, and act upon them, too, as if shown by the fact that on following him here she passed herself off as a woman separated from her husband, changing the miss before her name to Mrs. She lived under this assumption for twelve years at her present hotel. In all that time, so far as I can learn, she has never been visited by anyone of an appearance answering to that of her former lover, nor have I any reason to think she ever intruded herself on him or made herself in any way obnoxious. He was married and settled, and contrary to the usual course of men who step with one stride into affluence, was living a life of usefulness which was rapidly making him a marked man in public esteem. Perhaps she had no right to meddle with what no longer concerned her. At all events, there is no evidence of her having done so in all these fourteen years. Even after Mrs. Roberts' death, all went on as usual, but here Mr. Grice became emphatic, when he turned his attention to a second marriage, and that with a very young girl. I can name her to you, gentlemen, if you wish. Her patient soul may have been roused. She may have troubled him with importunities, may have threatened him with a scandal which would have interfered greatly with his political hopes if it had not ended them at once. I can conceive of such an end to her long patience, can't you, gentlemen? And what is more, if this were so, and the gentleman found the situation intolerable, 
it might account for the flight of that arrow as nothing else ever will. End of chapter 28, part 1